morning. Welcome, and welcome to all of you joining us online. Uh, you may want to prepare, if you're joining online, uh, by grabbing some communion elements. We'll be doing communion here in a few moments, uh, so just giving you a heads up. Uh, we are on week three in our series entitled The Pillars of Faith. Specifically, we're on the second week of looking into the topic of uh, creation. I have a lot of things to talk with you about this morning. If you missed last week, I greatly encourage you to go to our website, go to the media section, and look at that message because uh, it sets up today's message really well, and I don't have time to review it very much. I'm going to do a, a short review, but just want you to, to know that's available. Um, so here we go. I'm going to begin with a review thought. That's explanations of the origin of life, both creation and evolution are faith issues. There's no experiment we can do. There's no way of verifying it. So ultimately, it comes down to faith. Which do you choose to believe? I gave many examples last week of evolutionists, especially at the beginning uh, when it was taking some traction, that they had exterior motives for wanting evolution to be true. They didn't want to have to serve God. They wanted to have sexual freedom. They were not, you know, this unbiased, uh, agenda-free group of people. They had a, a bias and they had an agenda. And I readily admit, when I talk on this subject matter, I'm biased and I have an agenda. Amen? So we might as well just be forthright with that. And Darwin came up with what really uh, got this thing going uh, when he formulated his origins of species theory for uh, the origin of life. Um, but he, he said this, this rests on two assumptions. I want you to understand this. This rests on two assumptions. Darwin said this himself. First of all, he assumed that the cell, the animal cell, was very simple. To Darwin, the animal cell was just a black box. He didn't know how it worked. And he thought it could change super easily. Secondly, he assumed that they would discover lots of fossil records that would provide these intermediate links, these uh, forms of transition from one kind of life uh, species uh, to another. So here we are. Did any of that happen? Well, since his time, we've had the development of an electron microscope, and we know that the cell, the animal cell, is super complicated. It's not a simple glob that can mutate easily. It has lots of codependent systems. If you change one, it basically kills the cell. And so we know that the cell is marvelously, wonderfully made. It, to me, just smacks of design, okay, which leads to a, a creator. And how about the fossil record? We've, we're millions of fossil records down the road from Darwin's time, and there's not one intermediate link. And Ken Ham, the creation scientist, said the thing about missing links is that they're missing. So you have a scientific theory based on a couple assumptions. They're proven to be false. What do you do with that theory? Anybody here scientific at all? What do you do with that theory? You chuck it out the window. It's no good. That's all I got to say in the matter. So last week we looked at the history of some of these uh, early evolutionists and what they thought. Today I want to do something real different. For a few moments with you, <clears throat> I want to take another history trip. But I want to look back on figures in the past who were great scientists, who were also great people of faith and, by and large, creationists. And I want to see what they said and their view on things. Um, I, there's some spaces in your note guide if you want to try to write some of these guys' name down and do further research on them, you can do that. Um, if, if I lose you and you get real interested in this, just let me know and I'll get you a list of these people. But here's my observation. Some of the biggest contributors to science were committed followers of Christ. And sometimes the way this debate is, is uh, kind of put forth is that you have to be a smart person to believe in evolution, and you have to be kind of a dumb 
ignorant person to believe in creation. Well, I want to show you that there are a lot of really, really smart people that are, are committed followers who are also scientists. So here we go. Hang on, I'm going to go quickly. Johannes Kepler. He established the discipline of celestial mechanics. Uh, he stated early on in his astronomical researches that he was merely thinking God's thoughts after God. And this became the motto of a lot of scientists. I'm merely thinking God's thoughts after him. Then there's Francis Bacon. He was primarily responsible for the formulation and establishment of the scientific uh, method. He said, there are two books laid before us to study to prevent us from falling into error. First, the volume of scriptures, which reveal the will of God. Second, the volume of the creatures, which expresses his power. Then you got Blaise Pascal. He's the father of hydrodynamics. He said this, how can anyone lose who chooses to become a Christian? When he dies, if there turns out to be no God, and his faith is in vain, he has lost nothing. In fact, he has been happier in life than his non-believing friends. If, however, there is a God and a heaven and a hell, his skeptical friends will lose everything in hell. Then you got Robert Boyle. This guy is a big name in science. He discovered the ideal gas law, and I can't tell you how many things are based on the ideal gas law. He found it via his will the Boyle Lectures. And the purpose of the Boyle Lectures was simply to prove out the Christian religion. Then you got Isaac Newton. He's one of my favorite as a mechanical engineer. I have a degree in mechanical engineering. He was one of the guys that's at fault for everything I had to study, okay? So he discovered three laws of motion which make possible the discipline of dynamics. So when I was a junior in college, I took dynamics one and dynamics two. It's this guy's fault, amen? And he was also involved in the development of calculus. If any of you are taking calculus, you can blame Isaac Newton. He believed in a worldwide flood as, as uh, presented in Genesis chapter 7. And he also believed in a literal six-day creation as an explanation for the origins of life. This guy's smart, all right? I just want you to know that. Very smart. Then you got Michael Faraday. I, I, Michael Faraday is... One of my favorites just because his discoveries were so foundational to what we have going on today. He discovered electromagnetic induction. So when you run a coil through a magnet, you get a current, okay? So I have a Johnson 90 horsepower outboard motor that does not run right now. You know why? Because the stator's no good because there's a couple bad coils in it. And so when it turns, it doesn't create any electricity nor spark and the engine doesn't run so when you drive a car now especially if they're older uh you can sit there and say thank you michael faraday because without your discovery i would not have this car now i know now in the new vehicles there's some electronic ignition but they still work on kind of the same thing so he says this listen to what michael faraday says the bible and it alone with nothing added to it nor taken away from it by man is the sole and sufficient guide for each individual at all times, in all circumstances. Sounds pretty determined, doesn't he? And sounds pretty convictional in his faith. Then you got Samuel Morse, and we know him as the inventor of the telegraph. A lot of people know him. The first message he sent read, What hath God wrought? 
And then you got James Jewell. He's another really cool dude. He discovered the concept known as a mechanical equivalent uh, to heat. And that then produced this whole study of science called thermodynamics. And if you're in engineering at all, you'll take thermodynamics one and thermodynamics two. And again, he's the father of that particular discipline. And out of that discipline uh, of thermodynamics came the second law of thermodynamics. And it says this. A system without any external forces moves from a state of order to disorder. So all matter is, is proceeding towards ultimate equilibrium and cessation of processes. So let me say this to you in layman's terms. Things wear out. That's the natural order of things. Cars rust. No matter how careful you are, they rust. The sun will eventually burn out. A teenager's room will go from order to disorder naturally. Amen? My toolbox, I have a lot of tools, goes naturally from a state of order to disorder. This is precisely what the creationist says happens. Things naturally move from order to disorder. Evolutionists say the opposite. Things went from chaos and disorder to order by happenstance in, you know, mutation, okay? And now I understand that you can have other forces acting on something. In order for my toolbox to clean up, I spend two or three hours doing what? Cleaning it up. I'm an external force exerting energy into the situation and creating order from chaos. And I understand that that can happen. I call that creation. All right? Or intelligent, you know, um, intervention, okay? Just so you understand. Then there's Gregor Mendel. He's considered the father of genetics and in this study ex established the stability of, of kinds within living things. You know, kinds produce after their own kind. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1. We'll get to that in a moment. Mendel, so committed to Christ, chose to live a monastic lifestyle. And then Louis Pasteur... He's pretty important. He discovered germs as a cause of disease. And he also was really instrumental um, in the demolition of the prevalent, then prevalent evolutionary theory of spontaneous generation. See, they believed at that time, and this is back in the 1800s, okay, that, that out of this pile of garbage, of rubbish, of, of throwing away stuff over here, you know, they would see magnet, maggots grow and then flies come out. And people were thinking... Life just came out of that pile of garbage. Well, he just did some simple experiments showing how that wasn't the case. That things were laying eggs in there and life was producing life. It wasn't spontaneously just generating. Um, and he became then uh, the object of intense opposition by the then biological establishment because he opposed Darwinism. He didn't think the origins of species was a good explanation for the origins of life, which we know now not to be true. And he was opposed to spontaneous generation. And so he came under the ire of the established biological scientific community of his time, all right, for his opposition. Now, he said this, could I know all, I would have the faith of a Brenton peasant woman. And I read that and go, boy, that doesn't sound so great. I wonder what a Brenton peasant woman was all about. Well, that was just nothing more than a, a woman that lived in Britain, uh, Brittany, a province of France. And so he's just saying, when all life is whittled down, I just want to have the faith of this person here. 
She may not be educated like me, but she has a great faith, and that's what I desire to have in my life. Then there's George Washington Carver. Some of you know him. He says, he's the peanut man. Developed 300 different products from peanuts. People don't know this, usually. He developed 118 products from sweet potatoes. This guy was into his... Uh, legumes, you know, or whatever, developing products from these things, you know. And he was a sincere man of faith, and he credited all of his success uh, to God. So it's apparent here that great people of faith could also be what? Science-minded. They don't, they're not contrary. You could be smart and believe in the Bible and have a sincere Christian faith. Amen? Because a lot of times, that's the terminology this thing is posed in. You're, you're not smart if you believe in creation or intelligent design. If you believe in those kinds of things, you're viewed as dumb and not intellectual. And I say just the contrary, okay? So our faith needs to rest on this pillar of creation. So for a few moments now, we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 1 super quickly. And we're going to look at what exactly does Genesis chapter 1 tell us about the beginning, and the origins of life on this planet. All right, here we go. Day one, Genesis chapter one, verses one through five says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, as Pastor Aaron talked about in his message a couple weeks ago, right away here we see this Trinitarian revelation of God. There's, there's God interacting within himself, okay? And so we're beginning to see some pillars of truth that we need to build our faith on. And God is also revealed here as creator. As I mentioned last week, he is revealed as Elohim in this scripture, which means creator, preserver, mighty, and strong. And there are some key acts that happened on that first day of creation. And I just want to talk about those with you for a moment. First of all, we see the creation of space. He created the heavens, space. He, he created these things, okay? And so this is the first building block of life that's being created. Then a, a second building block is, is, is created. He created water and earth. Another word for that, if you're kind of into science, is he just created matter. Next thing he created was matter, another building block of life, all right? And then the third thing he created was, was energy. Let, let me put this up here, a third building block of energy, right? And so he's, he's establishing these building blocks of life. Now, the scripture here says that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is uh, the Hebrew word ruach, ruach. I have a nephew named Murak, all right? It means kind of breath of God, spirit of God. So the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Well, a lot of creationists uh, think this, that the spirit of God was literally imparting energy into the creation at that point. In other words, electromagnetic energy and gravitational energy and all that kind of stuff. And the earth began to spin on its axis and begin to form into a sphere like we know the bodies in space are. And we know for sure God created light because he created light. And light is energy. Or I said, okay, you, you know what I just said there. Anyway, light is energy, right? And so we know that God created energy. Now we're seeing these basic building blocks uh, of life. What's the fourth thing that God created on that time, during that time? There was evening and there was morning. What do we call that? Time, right? I have a, an example of this. I pulled a big old honky clock off the wall. I'll put it back. 
off the wall of our office, right? God created time. And so what we see here in Genesis chapter 1, it's a creation of space, matter, energy, and time, key building blocks uh, of life. Now, let me, let me clarify this time element a little bit for you. Uh, the Hebrew word used for time here is the word yom, Y-O-M. And yom's most common use is to designate a 24-hour day. And sometimes it's used to denote a longer period of time, but in this particular you know, usage of it here in Genesis uh, chapter 1, it's encapsulated by evening and morning, which is a common Hebrew way of saying one day. So basically, the best reading of this is to say, in one day, God did these things. So what we see here is the basic building blocks of life, right? Space, matter, energy, and time. Time is for our benefit, by the way, right? I think God dwells outside of time. I don't know if we can wrap our mind around that. Personal opinion, do whatever you want with that. But anyway, what I see about the Bible is this. The Bible isn't a text book of science per se. It doesn't give you something with all the formulas, but it's not anti-science at all. If you read it carefully, you begin to say, oh, it agrees with, I think, observable science. Let's go to day two. Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. Listen to this. And God said, let there be a vault. A lot of verses will say an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So we're told here the waters below were separated from the waters above by an expanse. And so I've done a lot of research in my life in this creation topic. And I've read a lot of interesting theories. But I'm just going to put forth one that I found that a lot of these ancient scientists that I just read to you today believed in. Uh, and so I'm going to uh, summarize that for you. So the waters are gathered together on the earth. So the earth is just this mass of water and, and matter, right? Okay, you got it? Going together. And then we say there's, there's, there's water gathered above the earth. So there's some kind of a barrier around the earth of water too, all right? That's what you, 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 it reads here, uh, seems to say. So Again, this is conjecture. I wasn't there. It's just some thoughts. But some of this makes a lot of sense. If you had this kind of a barrier, first of all, let me give you some of the characteristics we can kind of denote, uh, deduce from, from scriptures. It, it was evidently something you could see through because in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, we're told that you could see stars through it, right? So you could see the stars through it. So you could see through it. But we know it's not just like what we have today, uh, a cloud circulating the earth and weather patterns, because it wasn't until Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, well, in Genesis 2, verse 5 through 6, we're told it hadn't rained on the earth during this time. That the water came up uh, from the ground and, and watered uh, the earth. There was a mist and there were streams and all that kind of thing. Okay, you get what I'm saying here? So there was no rain. So it wasn't just our kind of weather. It was some kind of barrier. Now, I think a couple of things could happen with a barrier like this around the earth, that, and it makes sense. I'm just going to explain this. Again, if you don't like this theory, fine. Just read the scriptures and believe what that says, okay? But this probably would produce a greenhouse environment in here. So you'd have a greenhouse environment in here. Because the sun would come in here, and this would block it, and what got in here would bounce around, right? So the north and south poles would be the same climate as the rest of the earth. That's a greenhouse effect. Now, why would, I, why would that even be thought about? Well, 
There's fossil records all around our planet that indicate that at one time this, this planet was tropical everywhere. And that just baffles scientists. But if you look at this, you go, oh, that kind of makes sense, right? A second thing it would do, if you had water vapor, it would, it would, filter, out, um, it would filter out harmful, just harmful stuff, like radiation, okay? And, and uh, it's thought that that kind of stuff is hard on life. Uh, that's why you should use your sunscreen outside, right? We know that uh, too much ultraviolet is harmful for us. And uh, if you read your Bible really closely, you notice that early mankind, early people, men and women, lived a long life, like 900 years. You ever read that and go, what's up with that? Before the flood, they lived a really long time. Then after the flood, there was a quick <clears throat> degradation down to what we are experiencing today. So there's a couple thought processes here of why that would probably be the case. One is this vapor barrier probably filtered out stuff that was really harmful for life, and thus life would be longer lived, all right? Second thing, Adam and Eve were created perfect with perfect genetics. And so the farther away you get from Adam and Eve, the more genetics aren't perfect. So you take a combination of this filtering and perfect genetics, and it produces probably long life. Makes sense, right? I'm just giving you some possibilities. I want, all I'm trying to show you is what the Bible says doesn't mean you lay your brain down on the on ground and think, well, this is just by faith. And there's, this has a lot of good science behind it, too. Think about this. In Genesis 7, we have um, the worldwide flood. Where did the water come from? Well, most creationists that I read think it came from this, mainly from the vapor barrier. It provided the water supply for the deluge of the world. After the deluge, after the worldwide flood, what would happen? We'd have normal weather like we have today. I shouldn't call it normal. We'd have weather like we have today. And what is weather like we have today? What does a good thunderstorm produce? Rain and a rain bow. What is talked about in Genesis as a sign that God will not send another deluge? Rainbow. It makes sense. This is gone. Now we have weather patterns. Rainbows naturally show up. God says, that's going to be my sign. I'm not going to deluge the earth anymore. <clears throat> also, a pre-flood environment like this, ideal environment for dinosaurs to thrive and for insects to grow very large. They tend to grow large in trop tropical areas. What do we find in the fossil records? Lots of dinosaurs, lots of large insects. What would produce fossils? You have to ask yourself, how are fossils made? They die in a catastrophe usually, and they're covered, and they're mineralized by heat and pressure and all that kind of stuff. What would produce that kind of environment to create all kinds of dinosaur fossils? Worldwide flood. See how this stuff all kind of makes sense? It's not like you've got to lay your brain down to be a creationist, to be one who thinks that there was intelligent design behind our earth. Now, I want to take a real tangent with you. I'm already taking some tangents here. So this one may stretch you even more. But I want to talk to you about radiometric dating and a flaw in it, I think, a basic flaw. Uh, so this family of dating methods, some more than a century old, they take advantage of our environment's natural radioactivity. There's radioactive stuff in our environment. <clears throat> and these are 
These are called isotopes, radioactive isotopes. And they have a half-life. They break down from a radioactive material into a non-radioactive material over so many years. So you kind of get the general thing. And so let's use a real common one of these that uh, you probably have heard of. It's, 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 it's radiocarbon dating or, or C14 dating. So C14 is a radioactive uh, form of carbon. So as you're going along, you're breathing it in, and it's in the environment, and you have so much in your body. When you die, once you die as an organic being, you quit ingesting this stuff. You don't have it anymore. So at that point, C14 in you begins to break down into its stable form of C12. And so what a scientist will do is say that somebody dies. I don't know, Matt, I'll use Matt since you're over here. So Matt dies, and I come along uh, a few hundred years after Matt's dead, and I look at his bones, and I say, okay, he has so much C14 in here uh, versus C12. And by using that kind of ratio, I can go, oh, he's 300 years old based on, you know, uh, uh, how much of this ratio is in his body. Now, this kind of dating method, by the way, is only good for about 30 to 40,000 years. Then the, then the C14 gets so small, they don't know what to do with it. Now, this is based on an assumption. You've got to hear this assumption. It's a fatal flaw. It's assumed that the environment we live in has always been the same. That's not the case. It's never been the case, especially if you've been around something where there's volcanic activity. There's all kinds of increase in radiation there, you know, and changes that way. Well, what if you're in an environment like this to start with, and there's no radiation, there's no C14 being produced, basically zero. I'm a big old hunk of dinosaur, whichever one your kid really likes the best. I die, I have zero C14 in me. So along comes a little scientist, you know. I'm just a little scientist walking about years later, and I dig up this big old bone, and I say, and I put it in my dating methodology, and I use some radiometric kind of dating, and I go, look, there's no radioactivity in here at all. It's got to be three million years old. Because I'm assuming this had radioactive material in it, and if it didn't, I'm going to get this false kind of conclusion. And I, I just say, when I look at, at any of those, any of these, any of these uh, um, radiometric dating kind of things, I, the, the assumptions are all over in this thing on these kind of dating methods. And I think their assumptions are wrong. Okay? Again, I'm full of bias and agenda. I freely admit it. But so are the ones that, that uh, promote evolution. They're full of bias and agenda. So let me give this to you in a point. These dating methods assume that there has always been the same amount of radioactive elements present in our environment. A barrier could have had the effect of greatly reducing that amount. If this be the case, then fossils from this time period would have no radioactive materials in them, resulting in a false conclusion of being really old. So I'm going to leave that at that, okay? But I thought that's probably a good tangent to take. So let's go to day three of the creation account, to Genesis chapter 1 now, verses 9 through 13. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place, and let the dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered water she called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various, what? Kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, and it was the third day. So waters gathered, so key acts on this day is waters gathered, and dry ground appeared. Vegetation is created to produce after its kind. So what God is saying here is, 
He's establishing boundaries. He's saying a tomato plant produces after its kind, it produces a tomato plant. You know, a palm tree produces a palm tree. They produce after their kinds. There's a, a boundary. Living things produce according to their kinds. Now, this is contrary, a direct contrary statement to macroevolution. I want to use the terminology right here, which claims one kind can mutate into another kind. It can cross these barriers. Now, again, what we've seen, especially on the animal side with fossils, is there's not one intermediate link of a certain species becoming another species. Okay, you're getting my nomenclature here? There's nothing to support that whatsoever. A fish doesn't mutate into a lizard, and a plant doesn't mutate into an animal. There just isn't any evidence for that. And Gregor Mendel, this great scientist, that's what he proved out in his studies of genetics. Kinds produced after their kinds, you know. And, and, and the, that's what Genesis uh, says. And so I'm talking to Randy Flasky after first hour. Randy's a microbiologist at 3M. And, um, you know, I, like most lay people, inadvertently used, you know, viruses interchangeably with bacteria. Viruses really aren't alive. They don't even know what they are. But, I mean, you follow what I'm saying. And, but bacteria, we do a lot of study on. And Randy does a lot of culturing of bacteria. Millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of bacteria he's cultured over his years at, at 3M. And he says to me, not one time did a bacteria change into something else. And it's one of the simplest life forms there is in terms of, the, of, of you know, life forms. Okay, I just, you know, redundantly said something stupid there. But you get what I'm saying, right? And so uh, Randy is saying to me, uh, as a microbiologist, I'm absolutely convinced that things produce after their kinds. There's just no way they don't. I've had this experiment going on for years of just, you know, cult, of, of culturing billions of bacteria, basically, okay? And bacteria always remains a bacteria. I just want you to hear that, okay? This is really important to understand. So let's go to day four, Genesis chapter 1, verse 14 through 19. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky, that's the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so, and God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, that's the moon. He also made the stars, and God set them in the vault of the sky uh, to give light to, on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. So key acts of creation on this day are the creation of the sun, moon, stars, and seasons. And the sun then becomes a source of energy for life on this planet. We know how important the sun is for life on our planet. Note the order of creation here. Plants are created before the sun. Just note that, okay? I, I, I think sometimes God does this on purpose, so we catch some things. This supports the literal kind of timeline for creation. Plants need light to survive. Amen? Amen? Now, I know God's God. And we know that he created light before this and he created energy before this. So there could be a possibility that these plants could be sustained in another way. Um, and so I have to acknowledge that. But my simple reading of the scripture just says, plants, sun, all right. Most likely, this is literal day creation. Back in 1979, a fellow named Jack Eddy of the High Altitude Observatory in Boulder, Colorado, claimed the sun was shrinking at such a rate that the decline, uh, if the decline did not reverse, 
our local star would disappear within 100,000 years. I remember hearing about this way back in the day when I was really beginning to get into this topic of uh, intelligent design and creation. And uh, most people go, oh man, our sun's going to burn out 100,000 years. Okay, no big, no big deal, my lifetime, amen. But even if the sun was only decaying at one-fifth of the rate that he observed, it would have been twice its size as it is today a million years ago. It would have been twice as big at that decay rate. So if you do some empirical math and you go back and say, okay, we see it decaying at this rate. If we just go backwards a million years, our sun would be twice as big as it is today. Now that's problematic because the, uh, the uh, you know, standard geological um, chronology says at that time the earth was in an ice age. But what this data shows is at that time, if this indeed happened and we had that much time ago, this earth would have burned up. The sun would have been too hot. See, I think and I firmly believe technology is creation's best friend. See, in, in Darwin's day when he proposed the origins of species, cell was a black box. Now we have electron microscopes. We know the cell is not a black box. It's this marvelously created interactive uh, life that, that if something goes awry, it, it dies. And so things like observance of sun decay, observance of electromagnetic uh, decay in the Earth's field, you know, electromagnetic field of the Earth is decaying. It's been decaying for 150 years. If you extrapolate that back, just about, you know, 10, 10 to 15,000 years, extrapolate that rate of decay backwards, we would have been what they call electromagnetic star and life wouldn't be able to exist on this earth. And you begin to run into these things, you go, whoa. Now, I want to give you a formula here because here's why this matters, all right? Um, and this is what really started getting me to become a creationist. Evolution says this. I'm just saying E for evolution. It says life is this way. Evolution equals this. Energy plus matter plus LT, I'll talk about what that means in a moment, equals life. What do you think LT means? Lots of time. So I'm walking down the street and I see Lance Miner in the street and I said, Lance, I want to I ask you a question. Do you think life could have evolved in 100 years? What would he say? No, because we've been observing it for 100 years, right? How about 1,000? No, we've been observing it for 1,000. We know it can't happen then. How about 4,000? No. How about six? No. How about 100,000? I don't think so. How about a million? Hmm. How about 20 million? Hmm. You know? And that's what, that's what this basic evolution equation says. Energy plus matter plus lots of time equals life. What if there wasn't lots of time? That's all I want you to do. think about. What if the earth is way younger than we think it is? And we've just been having all these assumptions made that are wrong. Then what happens to this equation? Bingo, it's gone, right? There's that thing falls out and it's not, it's not a true statement. And I, I tell you what, that's why I find it interesting when you see these studies on the decay of the sun and all that kind of thing going on. So now on days five and six, I'm not gonna talk about that because we gotta get to communion here. Um, God created the creatures of the water, birds, and animals. And like plants, they have boundaries uh, reproducing within their kinds. And so I'm going to skip over this because I, I'm running out of time. So let's jump down to day six and conclude by looking at the creation of mankind. This is so important. Day six, Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Then God said, let us... 
Trinitarian language again. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. How are we created? In the image of God. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, increase the number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God said, I'll give you, you know, every seed-bearing plant in the, uh, on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit in it, they'll be yours for food. And on he goes here, right? Um, and that's the sixth day. God created mankind in his image as male and female. Note that point. We are not the product of happenstance. We're not the product of mutations. We're not just another step on evolutionary, you know, the evolutionary chain. God created us in his image. You're precious in his sight. That means we'll approach matters like the abortion issue entirely differently because we're created in God's image. Life is precious to God. We're not just a product of chance. We're not just biological creatures. Amen? Amen? So we value life. It produces a different worldview when we're creationists versus evolutionists. It produces a higher, a higher value to us. We're not the same as a dolphin, although we're to steward God's creation. Amen? And we're to care for it carefully. I'm probably one of the most ecologically minded people around. I care about this creation. I don't want to pollute it. I don't want to wreck it. Just because I'm a creationist doesn't mean whatever, you know, you, you, know, you follow what I'm saying? And so, at uh, any rate, let's go to this summary. It's, it's uh, this, God saw all that he made and it was very good. He saw that he made mankind in his image, male and female, and it's very good. Amen? I'm tired of people being culprits all the time and being viewed as less important than some plant species or a bird that's going extinct, which we should care about. But there's an order to things here that's really important. And so let's go to Colossians 2.8 once again. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elementary spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. I'm kind of a history nut. Um, anyway, Charles Spurgeon uh, said, he lived in the 1800s when evolution began to have some traction, and he said this, you'll see that the philosophy of today will be a football of contempt for the philosophy of that future period. They will speak amid roars of laughter of evolution, and the day will come when there will not be a child, but will look at it as being the most foolish notion that ever crossed the human mind. I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but I know what has befallen many of the grand discoveries of the great philosophies of the past, and expect the same thing to happen again. So, Spurgeon, I think, is on to something here. We're going to see this thing dissolve. Technology will be our friend. Technology will be our friend in showing that evolution's absurd. That's, I'm just going to make that flat-out statement, but time will tell. Here's what I want us to get to. This is the application I hope you take away today. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Set apart Jesus as Lord. Come to him without any reservation, without any doubt, full, in full assurance of faith that he is indeed creator, he is indeed Lord. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you uh, to give the reason for the hope that you have. And I hope some of this can be part of that answer that you're able to give to people for the hope that you have in Jesus. But do this with gentleness and respect. I have to really try not to be 
high-minded and mocking on some of this stuff. It's easy to get that way, you know what I mean? Because we're the recipients of that same kind of attitude. And so, but that's not how we enter into this debate. We enter into it sober-minded. We enter into it with a humbleness and a meekness and a control of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want you to consider here this, this week. Do you embrace God as creator? Do you see him that way? Do you pray to him sometime? Creator God, mighty and strong, preserving one. I know that if you removed your presence, we would cease to be. It puts a different light in how you approach God. How does acknowledging him as creator affect your relationship with him? It means that his sovereignty rules, that his word to you is the prescription to do life in the best way we can possibly do it. We know that what he created is good, that men and women are created in his image, and this was a good thing. And we begin to understand all kinds of dynamics about life that are really important. And can you explain the basics of creation to someone who questions you? You don't have to be an expert. Can you explain the basics? The, the, the Bible is not a science text, but I'm going to tell you this, it's not anti-science. If you believe it doesn't mean that you lay your brains down at the door of your house. It doesn't mean that. I find it very stimulating for me personally to read the Bible and see how it aligns with what's being observed, you know, when there's unbiased science. Again, I'm full of bias and my own agenda. How about you?